Well, last week we began a new series on Sunday nights. Instead of having our roundtable discussion group, we're each taking turns as ministers preaching sermons through the book of Acts. In this series of Acts, sir, excuse me, Psalms, wow, I've been in Acts too long. This, we've been preaching through the book of Acts on Sunday nights. We started that last week, and we're going to continue that through January 2nd. Now, next week we're going to have a break from this series. I believe we have a guest uh, speaker, uh, a missionary coming in next week, so please uh, make plans to be here to, to hear that. But we look forward to doing this series through Psalms. Each of us, each minister is getting to pick whatever psalm they want to cover. And the thing is, we've got 150 to choose from. So it can be difficult to narrow down which psalm you want to look at as a preacher. Tonight, I've decided to turn our attention to one of my favorite psalms, and that is Psalm chapter 51. So if you would go ahead and turn there, because I would like to begin tonight by reading the entirety of this psalm before we dive into it. Psalm 51. Beginning in the first verse, it reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood, guilt, from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you, you, you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now you may have noticed that Psalm 51 includes what we often refer to as a superscription. I intentionally didn't read it because I wanted to call attention to it. You see right there at the beginning of the psalm, it may be uh, referenced in your text in, in small capital letters, it may be italicized, but before you get to verse, the first verse of Psalm 51, you have this superscription. And this is certainly not unusual because the vast majority of psalms, that is 116 out of the 150 psalms, have a super, superscription. 
And our English Bibles place these superscriptions in unique font. And that sometimes gives the incorrect impression that they're not part of the canonical text. That they're a later edition. But these superscriptions are actually part of the canonical text. They may not have been written by the original composer of that particular psalm, but they were added by the general editor, if you will, of the book, compiling all of these psalms together. And they were added before the closure of the canonical period for the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to grab a Hebrew Bible, that is, that is a, the, the, the Bible that a Jewish person would possess, you'll find that the superscriptions are actually given a verse number. That's how they are viewed by the Jewish people, part of the text. These superscriptions often identify the author of the psalm, and such is the case here with Psalm 51. It identifies David as its author or as the source of its material. And David is the most prolific author of psalms. Almost half the psalms are associated with him. But Psalm 51's superscription goes even further. It associates this psalm with a particular historical situation in the life of David. It is one of only 13 historical superscriptions that name the event in the composer's life that led to the writing of that particular psalm. And Psalm 51 superscription says to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now right Upon hearing those words, the vast majority of you know the context of this psalm. You see, we, you notice that name Bathsheba. You, you, you hear her name brought out here at the start of the psalm. And it'll immediately call your mind to the events that unfold in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And let's read that very quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2, 3, and 4. It happened, the text says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. You hear the name Bathsheba, and you know we're talking about an act of adultery. That's part of the context of this psalm. But there was another name dropped in that superscription. It was the name of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet during the tenure of David. He was the one that David consulted with when David wanted to build a temple to God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the reference to Nathan here is a clear reference to his corrective confrontation with David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. See, David assumed that his sin with Bathsheba 
was a secret. In David's mind, he had made arrangements for Bathsheba's husband to be killed. So he was out of the picture. He had gone and taken Bathsheba to be his next wife. So that problem was taken care of. And in his mind, he had just gotten away with adultery and murder. But then the prophet Nathan showed up in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1. More correctly, the prophet Nathan was sent by God to David. And Nathan doesn't arrive on the scene and immediately say, Repent! Nathan realized that David's heart was so hardened at this point in his life That his sin needed to be exposed in a more meaningful way. So Nathan skillfully used a story about a rich man with a large flock of sheep and a poor man with a single young lamb to illustrate David's sinful behavior. And at first, David didn't realize the story was about him. But the story managed to incite David's anger toward the rich man who stole the single sheep from the poor man. And that's when Nathan shouted, You are the man. And David got the message. You can look in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 and see that the message came through to David because he admitted his sin to Nathan. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan responded to David's admission of guilt by saying, The Lord has put away your sin. In other words, in one single verse, David admits his sin and God forgives his sin. Isn't that beautiful? In one single verse, sin is admitted and sin is forgiven. But Psalm 51 indicates that there was much more to David's repentance than a single statement. Ultimately, this superscription at the start of Psalm 51 implies that this was the first psalm written by David after he acknowledged his sin and pleaded with God for forgiveness. And it may even be the case that this psalm is written as part of the prayer that David prayed for his restoration to God. As a result, Psalm 51 is viewed as one of six confessional or penitential psalms, one of only six. And this evening we're going to examine it because it serves as a model prayer for us, a prayer of forgiveness. So I want to break this psalm down. And the first thing I want to focus on is the appeal. See, in the first two verses, David begins with an appeal to God. His emphasis in this part is on who he's appealing to. Look again at the verses, Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's important to notice that the basis for David's request here has nothing to do with himself. He's appealing to God's character for forgiveness. David's fully aware that he doesn't deserve mercy. 
And so, he's appealing to God's very nature of being merciful. Both characteristics that David mentioned in these verses, God's steadfast love and God's abundant mercy, they are characteristics that God revealed about himself to the Israelites when he made his covenant with them. Hold your spot here in Psalm 51, and I want you to journey back to Exodus chapter 34 with me for just a moment. In Exodus chapter 34, if you look at verses 6 and 7, that's Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. We're told that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you know what Moses was doing at this very moment when God shows up and says, Hey, I'm the God who's merciful, and I'm the God who's gracious, and I'm the God who's slow to anger, and I'm the God who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know what Moses was doing? If you back up to verse 4 of this chapter, you'll see that Moses was cutting two tablets of stone like the first. So let me give you a little bit of context. This self-revelation from God about his steadfast love and faithfulness happened just two chapters after Moses broke the original tablets of the testimony. And he's making new ones at this point. Now, do you remember why Moses broke the original tablets? Because he came down from Mount Sinai and was so enraged at what he saw that he threw the stones, the tablets down and broke them into pieces. And what he saw was the children of Israel worshiping a golden calf. And that angered Moses, but it angered God even more. If you look at Exodus chapter 32, this is what God said when he first realized what the Israelites were doing. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 9, God told Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. I thought this was the God who was slow to anger. You have to remember, he also identified that he was a, a God who by no means clears the guilty. See, God's anger was aroused by the act of the Israelites there at the base of Mount Sinai. And he didn't want to destroy them because of their wickedness in this moment. But he relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The text will go on to explain. And we're just two chapters removed from that. When Moses... Is creating new tablets. And God shows up and says, I'm merciful, and I'm gracious, and I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God 
just two chapters after one of the greatest sins with, among his covenant people, God, just two chapters later, shows up and reminds them that he's a forgiving God. And he's just modeled it in the way he forgave those people at Mount Sinai. That's the God David's appealing to. David's referencing the characteristics of God that God himself identified that day to Moses. And he's, he's saying, God, have mercy on me, essentially like you had on the Israelites when they worshipped that golden calf. He's appealing to the God who, who has revealed himself to have steadfast love, who has revealed himself to have great compassion, who has revealed himself to be abundant in mercy. Because David knows he doesn't deserve those things. He can only receive those things because they are qualities of God that God can bestow at his will. So in these first two verses of Psalm chapter 51, David makes his appeal to the one, the only one, who can give him help in this situation. He then goes on in the next few verses to take the first step in the process of repentance. First step in the process of being restored to a right relationship with God. And that first step was acknowledging his sin. So look at verse 3 through 6 with me once again in Psalm 51. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here, David acknowledges that he's sinned. He's admitting his guilt. He's declaring his wrongdoing. Now you may look here at Psalm chapter 51 and verse 4 and think, well, David, yes, you sinned against God, but didn't you also sin against other people too? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against her husband Uriah? Didn't you sin against your own wives? So how can you say against you and you only have I sinned? The point David is making here is not so much that God is the only one he has sinned against, but God is the most important one that he has sinned against. He seems to be using hyperbole to highlight the gravity of his sin against God. I want you to think about Joseph. Do you remember when Joseph was tempted to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife? He declined. He refused. He fled. And his thought process, as we're told in, Exodus, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 39, was how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He would have sinned against Potiphar too. But his chief concern as well is how can I do this to God? Do we approach sin that way? Do we face temptation 
with that on our mind. How can I do this to God? After all He's done for me, how can I go through with this and sin against Him? That's the mentality that David's trying to show. In his penitence, he's acknowledging that he's done something egregious against God. And we should also point out, he continues in hyperbole here. It's apparent in verse 5, which says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some have used this text to argue in favor of the Calvinistic doctrine of original sin or hereditary depravity. It's that idea that, that guilt is inherited from one's parents, and, and each is sinful from the time they're born. But such a doctrine is easily discredited in the Bible. Just look at what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. He said, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That's Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. And then Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3 will say, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Rather than condemn little children as sinners, Jesus commends them as examples of innocence. And the implication of Jesus' statement is supported by Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, where Moses declared that children have no knowledge of good and evil. So you can go throughout Scripture and you can discredit any doctrine of original sin. And since original sin is inconsistent with Scripture, then we must view David's statement that he was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin as hyperbole. It's kind of like me saying I've been a minister all my life. I'm not saying that I've been a minister since I was born. I didn't come out in a suit and a tie with a Bible in hand ready to preach. Ben may have, but not me. <laughs> when I say that I've been a minister all my life, I'm saying that my entire career has been in ministry. And so ultimately, David's trying to declare here the longevity of his sinfulness. He's saying that he sinned more than just this one time. He's acknowledging that sin has been a constant presence in his life, and he regrets that. And unfortunately, we can all sympathize with that sentiment that sin has been redundant and repetitive in our lives. See, the big takeaway from this section of the psalm is that David makes an open and honest admission of guilt. And that just might be the hardest part of any process of repentance. We often don't want to admit that we're in the wrong. We don't want to own up to what we did. We don't want to say, I've sinned. But such a confession is essential to restoration. David's son Solomon later wrote in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, Whoever seals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
And you may recall that John, in John chapter 1 and verse 19, said, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There was a condition to forgiveness in John's words. There was a condition to being cleansed from all unrighteousness. And that condition is the confession of our sins. And so as we look at Psalm chapter 51, we need to note how David acknowledged his sins because receiving forgiveness and restoring our relationship with God necessitates such a confession of guilt. In the next section of Psalm 51, David returns to his initial plea for forgiveness, but this time, instead of emphasizing whom he's appealing to, he focuses on what he's appealing for. Look at verses 7 through 12 of Psalm 51 with me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is a beautiful section of the psalm. All of these statements are unique ways of asking for forgiveness. And I'd love to take the time to break down each one of them, analyze each one of them, but I preached for 47 minutes this morning, so I better not. You think I don't know how long I preach, but I do. So I want to focus on one statement in the midst of all this. One statement that stands out to me. And it's one that appears in verse 11. When he requests for God to not cast him away from his presence, as well as for God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Do you remember what David's first political office was? After being anointed successor to the king, David temporarily returned to shepherding until he was summoned by King Saul to be his personal musician. That was David's first royal position. Musician. Now why did Saul need a personal musician? If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 14, you find out why. We're told there that due to Saul's continued disobedience, he had been rejected as king, but in particular, we find out in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit, if you read on into verse 16, a distressing spirit from God would come upon him from time to time. His servants came up with a remedy to this distressing spirit. They decided that someone needed to play music for Saul when he has these moments because they felt like the music would soothe Saul's soul, drive away the distressing spirit. And the guy they chose to play music for Saul is described in verse 18 as a skillful musician, but more importantly, 
He's described as someone who the Lord was with. The Spirit of the Lord departed Saul, but the Spirit of the Lord was with David. And for that reason, they chose him. Here's why I bring that up. I wonder if David was especially concerned about being cast from God's presence and having his Holy Spirit taken away from him because he had witnessed firsthand those consequences in the life of Saul. So when David appealed for God to forgive him, he didn't ask God to keep his sin from being discovered. He didn't pray for there to be no consequences. David didn't say, take not this kingdom from me. Instead, he prayed, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because David's chief concern was to not be separated from God. And shouldn't that be our chief concern? Sin. Sin separates. That's the ultimate consequence of sin. It separates us from God. And I want you to realize this. The worst thing about hell is not going to be the fire. And the worst thing about hell is not going to be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The worst thing about hell is going to be the darkness. Because the metaphor of darkness implies that hell will be a place of total isolation, a place of eternal loneliness. And the reason it's going to be those things is because you will be permanently separated from God in hell. You see, all throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light. And his absence is consistently associated with darkness. In fact, John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the emphasis of this metaphor of darkness is that hell is a place absent God, a place of complete separation from the author of life and the giver of all good gifts. And so Paul summarized this consequence quite well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 when he referred to hell as a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what David didn't want. David prayed for God to not cast him away and to not take his spirit away. Because David saw in the life of Saul what a life apart from God looked like. And he didn't want to go there. And so when you look at Psalm 51, realize that a penitent heart recognizes the consequences of sin and does everything in its power to prevent those consequences. That might be the greatest value this psalm has to offer us. But there's something else you need to notice as a result of this psalm. It's a prayer of repentance. David is acknowledging his sin, and David is repenting of his sin throughout this psalm. But we need to understand something about repentance. Repentance doesn't just mean that I regret what I did or, or that I'm remorseful for what I did. 
it also means that I orient my life in a different direction. The Greek word translated repent is metanoeo. It means to change one's mind. Now what does that have to do with repentance? The word literally means to think differently after. And so to repent is to change the way you think, to alter the way you think. Repentance is a complete turnaround. Repentance necessitates a regret of the sin committed and a lifestyle that indicates a change of behavior and or attitude. It's an about-face, if we were to use military terminology. And here in Psalm 51, as David asks for forgiveness, as David asks for a clean heart, as David asks for a restored relationship with God, he goes on to identify what changes he will make in his life, how he will alter his direction, how he will turn around. So I want you to read with me verses 13 through 17. Because after pleading with God to not cast him away from his presence and to not take his Holy Spirit away, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says there's not enough sacrifices in the world to please God in this moment. That's not what God ultimately wants from me. What God wants from me is change. And so do you see what David is saying? He's saying he's going to confront and correct sin in other people's lives just as Nathan confronted and corrected the sin in his own life. He's saying that he's going to praise God with every opportunity that he had. He's saying that his life is going to be oriented around the one who is the source of his salvation. David's not just asking for forgiveness here. He's also stating how he's going to change his life and bring glory to God in the process. That's just as much a part of repentance as confession is. So you look at this psalm, and what you see is David appealing to God for forgiveness because God is the only one who can have mercy on him. You see David admitting his sin, confessing it, taking ownership of it. You see David appealing for cleansing, appealing for restoration. And you see David promising change. In Psalm 51, you see what real repentance looks like. 
Some of you may have seen the 2009 movie starring Sandra Bullock called The Blind Side. The film, though obviously embellished at points, is based on the life of the Tui family of Memphis, Tennessee, who took in a homeless teenager named Michael Orr. Michael eventually went on to become a successful football player at the University of, of, uh, at Ole Miss and, and also as a first-round draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens. I read about how Sean Tui, the patriarch of the family who was played by Tim McGraw in the movie, I read how he described how their journey began. He said it all started with two words. When they spotted Michael walking along the road on a, a cold November morning wearing nothing but shorts and a t-shirt, his wife, Leanne, told him to turn around. Those two words, turn around, changed everything. That's what repentance really is. Turning around. And that's what David modeled when he prayed this prayer in Psalm chapter 51. And we know the results of that prayer. Because as I mentioned already, if you go over to first, excuse me, second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, Nathan told David, "The Lord has all has put away your sin." You know what's very interesting to me about this psalm as we close out? is that the superscription identifies the sin that prompted this psalm. It was the sin of David's adultery with Bathsheba. But not once in the psalm itself, not once in the text of what David wrote, is that specific sin mentioned. And one commentator said he believes that's because this psalm is a template for us to use as our own prayer for repentance. This evening we journey into another psalm, a very different psalm than we looked at last week. But in it, we see what a penitent heart really looks like. It may be tonight that you're struggling with some sin in your life, and you need to repent of that this evening. You may need to go through the very same steps that David did. It may be that you're here tonight never received permanent access to forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. The one sacrifice that takes away sin for all time, it may be that you're here tonight and you need to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of your sins, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you have any need tonight, we invite you to come at this moment while